Hey, can you hear me? Look at that. Well, I should scrap my sermon on technology being the foundation of our, of our gathering today. Uh, this week, actually, we are continuing in our series about our core values as a church. These are the things that we emphasize in our ministry and also the things that guide us and keep us on track in our mission as a church. Now, the first week, we went through God's glory, how we seek to give him glory in all that we do. Last week, we talked about God's grace. and We emphasized strongly on the one hand that we are saved by God's grace and on the other, and I was privileged to teach about that, but then Pastor Chuck came and gave us the message on how grace continues on in our daily lives as believers. And if you didn't get an opportunity to listen to that, I would strongly encourage you to revisit that sermon online, um, because I feel like we sometimes neglect that aspect of God's grace, that it continues to transform us and change us. This week, we are talking about our core value, gather. We gather to study and apply God's word, to worship the Lord, to work together to accomplish his purposes in our lives and community. What I would like to emphasize in today's sermon is what the heart of gathering is. What is it that drives us to value these things? And I think we could point to plenty of really practical reasons why it's a good thing to gather together. Community is a good thing. There's physical and spiritual resources here. There's a sense of transcendence. There's something greater than me going on here. There's emotional and spiritual connection with others. There's education. There's music. And hey, there's even pickleball. <laughs> there are plenty more practical reasons to come together, and these are all good things. However, if gathering together does not have a driving force underneath all of the practical outcomes... We might try to piece together the practical things in other locations. It's kind of like how millennials didn't want to pay for a cable subscription. And so we started just paying for the streaming services that we wanted to, which I might even add, you're welcome. <laughs> but it has now turned into so many streaming services that we have really just reverse engineered cable. And if we don't identify an underlying force that compels us to gather together, we might look for the practical things in other locations. We might try to find community in a book club, the transcendence in an outdoor hike. We might try to find a sense of purpose in a political rally. And we might search for spiritual education in a podcast. And increasingly so in our digital age, if we don't find an underlying force pushing us, compelling us to gather together, we might try to piece together church from several different churches online. In today's sermon, I want to analyze the why, the who, and the what of our gathering. And in this, I believe the scripture reveals to us that there are underlying reasons compelling us to gather together. And even more so than that, I believe there is reason to devote yourself to a singular local church body. So why do we gather together? To answer this question well, I think we need to start with a little Greek word study. And if you were just to search the word church in your Bible, every time you see that word, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is used in some form in the New Testament 111 times. And you may or may not be surprised to learn that the Greek word does not mean 
brick building, white steeple, with or without gym for dodgeball. The term ekklesia has a literal Greek meaning and then common usage definitions, both of which I think are going to be helpful for us today. Literally, ekklesia means called out ones. The common translation of this would be assembly. And I give you both of these because on the one hand we could say it's a gathering of people, but the Greek emphasizes specifically that they came out from somewhere. So 111 times in the New Testament where we describe the church, we must see that it is always, one, a group of people. Two, they've come out of their homes. Three, they are intentionally assembling somewhere together. In the very base description of a church, it is foremost a people and not a building. It is a group and not a person. And this description, this is a description of church, but it also might be the description of a theater or a sporting event. And so I think critical to our understanding about what sets church apart from these kinds of things is what exactly are we getting called out of our homes for? What is the object of our gathering? And that's going to lead us to Ephesians 4. I want to look at verses 1 through 7 here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This begins the second half of the book of Ephesians, and Paul begins this by urging the church to walk worthy of the calling by which they have been called. Our Christian lives are lived in response to a call. So too, we see that our gathering together is going to be in response to the gospel call on our life. If you recall last week, I took us through what the Bible says about being saved by grace. And it's not by coincidence at all that we got that understanding just two chapters before this in Ephesians. The gospel call is one of grace. Before Christ, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins, following the course of this world, looking out for our own pleasure and our own best interests. Then, at the weakest, lowest state, God takes us from death into life, not in order to show how great and worthy we are, but for us to see how wonderful and great He is. And there is no work that could be done to save us. It was a free gift to us so that we wouldn't boast. And then we briefly talked about how the work doesn't save us, but our transformed life compels us forward in good works. And so here in chapter 4, where Paul is talking about walking worthy of that call, he is saying that our salvation by grace compels us toward a certain manner of life. And I think we can also reframe it in this way. We are called out of death and into life. We are called out of sin and into obedience. We are called out of wrath and judgment and into grace. 
And so here in this chapter, we see that the gospel calls us out of life for ourselves and into community with other believers. Take a look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It is here that I see that we see the heart behind our gathering. It is a natural outflow of our salvation by grace that we are compelled towards the community of believers. Responding to the call of Christ is recognizing I am no longer my own. I am now part of one body. I am now being called to others to have oneness and peace and love. And we're tempted to think that the main way that I would walk worthy of my salvation is by doing good works. But take a look at this chapter. He says, walk worthy of the call, and then he spends 16 verses talking about how belonging to the body of Christ is important before he ever gets to the change your mind and change your actions. If you ask Paul, how do you walk worthy of the call? Priority one is gathering with the body of Christ. So we gather as one body because our faith in Christ is worthy of it. It flows out of gratitude for the grace that we have all individually received, and it is to bring glory to God who saved us. He has called us out of ourselves and into community that is founded on his grace for his glory. I need you to see that gathering together is something that comes from the heart. If we aren't driven to gather for that reason, we're going to evaluate church based on what it can give me. We strip down church to the length of service, the preference of music, the quality of preaching, the availability of donuts, not to mention, not to mention maybe the ease with which I can come and go without ever being known. When Saturday night rolls around and you're considering whether or not you're going to get up and go to church in the morning, it shouldn't be a list of obligations, it shouldn't be a list of frustrations, or determining whether it fits with your other Sunday commitments. It should just be a question, is Christ worthy? What decision would show his worthiness? Now listen, I have no interest in being the attendance police. It would also be counterproductive for me to stand up here and list all the reasons that I think it's valid for not being at church on a given Sunday, of which there are probably plenty. But what I want you to do, and what I'm calling you to do, is search your heart. Are you being driven, are your decisions being driven by Christ's worthiness or your own worthiness? And for you who are listening to this later, or you're watching it on a live stream, haha, gotcha. <laughs> No, (laughs) I'm not going to presume that I know your situation. I'm not going to presume I know the reasons, but I'm thankful that you've tuned in. I'm thankful that you're making an effort to keep in touch. And I ask you to search your heart as well. For some of you, I know that me even prompting you to search your heart on that is just a painful reminder that you want so badly to be here and physically cannot be. And my prayer is that God would bring that season to a close and he would sustain you with grace and peace for the duration. But for others, do you have that same pull? 
Do you have that deep longing? Is your heart compelling you towards God's people, or have you grown content with where you are? Are you allowing superficial priorities to keep you from gathering? My prayer is that the Spirit would stir up this longing in you, that you would be compelled to gather, recognizing the call placed on your life to be with the body. And I think I could speak for all of us. No one wants church to be a lifeless, dry obligation. We could be tempted to think that the excitement and life on a Sunday morning is having all of my preferences met and having the best amenities provided. But gathering with the body comes from the heart. And we must pray that the Spirit shapes our heart to desire God's glory over our preferences. This passage reminds us that we are not saved to be alone, but we also must recognize that we are not saved alone. We might understand that we have been called to the gathering, but it is another thing to recognize that we are gathered with others. So let's take a look at who it is that we gather with. Let's turn to Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. It says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and having individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We see immediately from this passage there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Off on my own, just me and Jesus. And if that wasn't clear already from the fact that there's not an assembly of one person, there's also not an alone church. Instead, that we see that there is one body, but it is made up of unique parts. And we must recognize that there is unity, but there is also diversity within the body. God designed the church to be made up of diverse gifts and functions, to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, diverse socioeconomically. Before we get to the how do we have unity despite our differences, I want us to first focus in on this phrase, members one of another. Not only am I gathering with other people, but I am a member of them, and they are a member of me. I want to talk briefly about church membership, but first I want you to see that it is rooted in this idea that we are interlinked and interdependent on one another by nature of being part of the body of Christ. We are not the same and God has gifted us differently, but we are for one another and our gifts are to be used for one another. Pastor Chuck so rightly observed this in last week's sermon that we are withholding a measure of grace from one another if we abstain from using our spiritual gifts. When we understand our relationship to the whole body of Christ, the church universal, we can then understand what the practical, physical manifestation of that should be in our time and place. And as a Christian, you are a member of the body of Christ, but I believe strongly that you are to be a member of a local church body. Now, some of you have been part of churches that are really dogmatic about membership with strong regulations and expectations. 
Others of you have never been members or been a part of a church that cares about membership at all. I would love for you to consider being a member here, and you can talk to Pastor Chuck or myself about that, about our upcoming membership class. But in brief, I will tell you what it means to be a member of Westchester. Primarily, it means you're not a member of another church. It means not only that you align with our beliefs and our mission as a church, but that you're committing yourself to that mission and these people specifically. If you are not committed to a local body, you will find it very difficult to live out the one another commands of Scripture. If you want me to accept that you are a member of me and I of you, then I have to see you. I have to have life experiences with you. I need to know that you have a vested interest in me specifically. Being a member means giving the first fruits of your time, your energy, and your tithe to a local church body. And tithing is important, and it's definitely a factor, but that's going to be a sermon for another time. My question for you, are you giving your best to your local church body, or do you just give your leftovers? Would, would people think that you are trying to keep one foot out the door just in case something goes against your preferences, or just in case times start getting hard? Are there people in this room right now who are praying for you? Are there people whom you are praying for in return? Are you known by people here? The most common images of the church given in Scripture are that of a family and that of a body. A family is bound together by more than just voluntary attendance. It's bound together by blood, by heritage, by history. There's expectation, there's responsibility. And then in a body, the pieces are held together by ligaments. They're held together by nerves and vessels connecting one thing to another. This is why when one person is hurting, we should be hurting. This is why when another part of us is feeling joy, it should affect us. Likewise, if there is a part of you that is choosing to sever itself from the rest of the body, it leaves a void. There's pain. There is loss. And we must recognize that over the course of our lifetime of sanctification, the Scripture and the Spirit are going to be urging us to deeper relationship with one another, stronger connection, greater commitment. And if that has gone the opposite for you, there needs to be repentance. We cannot presume upon the grace and kindness and service of others. And we cannot withhold our own measure of grace from others. We gather to one another and for one another. But once again, this is not out of guilt, and it's not out of shame, and it's not out of dry obligation. We gather together out of response to the grace that has been given to us. And it's that very grace that allows us to weather the storms, the tensions, the threats of division as a church body. Let's be honest, Westchester. Our congregation is over 130 years old. We've seen our share of controversies. Our church has gone through tensions. There are storms that threaten to divide us. And our ability to stand here today is first and foremost a testament to God's sustaining grace, calling us to continue gathering together, calling us to continue sacrificing and caring for one another. And secondly, it is a testament 
to those who choose to weather the storm. If we flip those, and if we think that it is all resting on our will and ability to hold things together, we'll, we'll fail. That weight is too much for us to carry in the flesh. It must be carried along by the Spirit. But being honest about our past hurts and pains is important for us moving into the future. I would categorize my own time here in the life of Westchester as a season of recovering and renewing. And if you were here in the season before that, you know about pains, you know about spiritual attack, as though storm clouds had just kind of rested on this church and you're wondering what's next. And it's been so clear in my time here that ministry at Westchester has been sustained first because of God's grace and mercy upon his people. And secondly, because so many of you chose to weather the storms. So many of you chose to stay committed to this body and seek God's grace to carry us into the future. But since we carry some of that pain and grief with us, it can be hard to trust. It can be hard to bring others into the body or even back into fellowship out of fear that the same hurts are going to repeat themselves. And this is why we must recognize that it is not our own doing that sustains us as a church. We don't gather merely because we have decided to. We are being compelled together out of gratitude for God's grace. And in that grace, we have the freedom to trust we have the freedom to love. We have the freedom to welcome in others. And be, we can be willing to be vulnerable because his grace sustains us. And it is when, not if, the storms and tensions come again. And we depend on his grace to bind us to one another. So Westchester, I encourage you, especially if you've been here a long time, invite others in. Welcome others into this body. Commit to being members of the people around you, not just your best friends, not just your own family members. Look to the others in this room as your brother, sister, father, mother, son, or daughter. Let us be the family, the one body that God has called us to. We are not saved alone. We're not saved to be alone. We are compelled to one another out of an abundance of grace that has been given to us. Now, I would like us to consider what is it that we do when we gather together. And for that, let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. Looking at verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I think this passage could have been a lot more convenient for us if it said, every believer devotes Sunday morning from 9 a.m. to 11.30 to be with the church, sing exactly five songs, no more than 30 minutes of preaching, and only socialize with your favorite people. Donuts optional. I, I think it would be best if we understood this as the fruits of gospel transformation in the lives of believers. All the trappings of church ministry that have been added over the years by tradition, and I would also add to that a whole lot of wisdom, but the manifestation of the Spirit's work in the lives of believers is that God is compelling us toward one another. God compels us to gather. He compels us to learn from the Word. He compels us to fellowship in prayer. He compels us to share meals together. And because the Spirit shaped them to understand that they were members one of another, part of one body, interlinked in such a way, everyone's needs were met. Their hearts were so filled with God's grace that they are moved to generosity, even selling in their excess to fill what is lacking in others. And while this is not exactly telling us how to do church, it is telling us what is consistent with lives that are transformed by Christ. In my opinion, this would have been a great place for the offer to, def to define what exactly is a hymn and what is a contemporary song, how many of both should be in a service, what instruments should be played, and what is the decibel that they are not to exceed, or how many adult Bible fellowship classes should we have, and how should they be organized? The biblical authors could have made my job a whole lot easier in particular. But instead of having instructions, I think this should once again cause us to examine our hearts. We can see some guidelines in here that we need teaching, we need worship and fellowship. But once again, this isn't coming from the top down in an organization structure. This is flowing out of the hearts of the people. And we need to ask if our hearts are engaged in these ministries. If they aren't, we need to be asking God to shape us in this way. God, give us deeper desire to understand your word. Create a longing in me to be together and have all things in common with the people that you've called me to. Help me to be hospitable in my home and to break bread with others. God, give me a glad and generous heart. Lord, add to our number those who are being saved. May that be flowing out of our response to your grace. And we ask God for these things because it is clear that this is the fruit that should flow out of lives that are transformed by the gospel. As God compels us toward one another in deeper unity and faith and love, it is also clear what paths we should walk together. When we gather, we will devote ourselves to teaching. We will have times of fellowship, we will eat meals together, and we will worship and pray. These things are in the heart of our gatherings first, because our hearts are tuned in this manner, and secondly, because it's tradition, and that's what we know about church. In addition to these things, we also have baptism and communion that we celebrate when we come together. And when we get to think of these things in the context of being members one of another and being led in our hearts to do these things, it transforms these ordinances out of mundane rituals. At Westchester, we baptize believers, 
and we do baptism by immersion in the water. And more discussion about that could be had in the specifics, but in brief, the reason we do it is because of what we studied last week in Ephesians 2. We were dead in sin, and Christ made us alive. When a person is taken under the water, it is a symbol to them and to us that they, by faith, are united with Christ in his death and thereby have died to sin. And when they rise up out of the water, it is a symbol to them and to us that they, by faith, are united with Christ in his resurrection and thereby have been given new life. And I emphasize that it is a symbol to the person because it is meant to be a tangible experience to remind this person that they have died with Christ and raised with Christ. Baptism was never meant to be something that we would just go down the aisle every time that we feel like we've strayed and we need to recommit. Baptism is meant to be a confirmation of what Christ has already done, not a commitment for us to do better. And then for each of us, we, all, we first of all get to remember our own baptism and celebrate that being brought from death to life is something that was past tense for us. And then because we're united by faith to this brother or sister being baptized, we celebrate with joy at the Spirit's work in their life. And if you haven't been baptized, let's talk after the service. Let's make it a priority to do so because it is a gift for you and it's something that we get to celebrate together. We also have communion or the Lord's Supper that you see we're going to be partaking of here soon. And too often, this becomes a dry and dull ritual done out of obligation. And you may have been raised in a church that made you feel guilty when you went to the Lord's table because you're really supposed to show yourself worthy of partaking it. But once again, we are invited to the Lord's table by grace and not by merit. And it should be a celebration done in humility and reverence, but not guilt. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. The whole basis of the celebration is that guilt has been removed from you. Come to the table in peace. The table does come with a warning, however. If you're not a believer and you seek to partake of the meal, it becomes a meal of judgment rather than celebration. If you do not come to the meal with faith that Christ accomplished something that you couldn't do, on your own behalf, then you are still in your sins. And the meal shows that you come with pride before the Lord. And if you're uncertain about this, I, I urge you not to partake with us in a few minutes. But if you have any question about it, let's, let's talk. Let's be able to confirm your faith together so that this would be a meaningful, heartfelt celebration of God's grace. It is fitting that the symbol we chose for our gather core value is the table. It stands as such a great reminder of what this is all about. We have been ushered into relationship with God by his grace, to fellowship with him, to partake of his grace. But it also stands as a great reminder that we have not been saved alone. You might even say it's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. In all seriousness, though, we do not arrive at this table alone. We have been joined together with brothers and sisters to partake of this grace together, to serve one another in love, and to be united with one another. 
And because our hearts have been so filled with his grace, it compels us toward one another so that we gather together by his grace for his glory. Uh, This morning we are bringing back an old tradition of ours as we partake of communion. Could I have the elders go ahead and come forward? We are going to be passing trays with the elements on them. If you would prefer, in each row, there should be some prepackaged elements if you would prefer to take them that way. If you would hold on to the elements as they're being passed, uh, we're going to have a song up here, just a time of reflection on Christ's sacrifice. But as you pass the tray to the next person, I want you to take it in that this is not a ritual just for you. This is a reminder that we have come to the table together and we are partaking of the same grace in one body, one spirit, and one Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the instruction from the word. I thank you that your grace compels us together, that it does not compel us to be alone. And you've saved us to a church body. And God, that we get to have this physical tangible manifestation of the body of Christ coming together in unity, participating in your grace together. Lord, would you transform our hearts as we reflect on that this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.